Hey, so we're in this series where we are talking about the new things that God is bringing into our lives. And uh, what I've been kind of covering the last couple of weeks is the same basic idea that God is doing the same pattern throughout human history. It goes like this. God makes a promise, and that promise is effectively worded this way. I'm going to bless you, and you're going to bless others. I'm going to bless you, and you will be a blessing. God says, I will bless you, and you will pass that blessing on to others. That's God's promise. And God keeps that promise secure throughout all of human history. He made it first to Adam and Eve in slightly different words. He then later made it to Noah and his family. He then later made it to Abram. And Abraham was the the place where we get it most clearly, where God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless your socks off and then you're going to bless the whole rest of the world. But then after Abraham, he repeated that same basic promise through Moses and then repeated it again through David and then repeated it repeatedly through the prophets until finally Jesus would echo it in a slightly different form as well as he taught. But the promise has stayed the same throughout all generations, but everything around it has been new. Everything around it has changed. God keeps the promise the same, but everything, literally everything around it changes. He changes with Abraham. He changes where Abraham lives. Abraham is living in one place, and God says, Abraham, I'm going to give you all these blessings, and you're going to be a blessing to the rest of the world, but to start, you leave this place, and you go to the place I will show you. Leave this current location, and I will take you somewhere else. Happens again with Moses. Moses comes to the people of Israel. They're living in in Egypt. They're suffering as slaves. And God says, I've got an arrangement for you. I'm going to take you out of Egypt. I'm going to liberate you. I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to take you out of Egypt. And I'm going to bring you into a land that you don't deserve, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of uh, just promise and just so many great blessings. I'm going to bring you into this land of blessing. And from there, you will bless the rest of the world. I will bless you and you will bless the rest of the world. But the problem is you have to leave Egypt. And you're thinking, okay, well, that's great. Egypt is the place where I'm a slave. But Egypt is also the place where you know everything. Egypt is also the place where everything is comfortable, where everything is just the way you have grown used to. Sure, they whip you during the day, but at least you're used to your bed at night. And you have to leave this one place and go to this other place. Frequently, in the stories we read in the Bible, when God is doing a new thing, he even requires people to move to new places. He did that so many times in the Bible. And so I was encouraging you the last couple of weeks to maintain the idea that people in the Bible have whenever they encounter one of these new experiences. You've basically got two people. You've got the people who respond with openness and welcoming to the new thing God is doing. And then you've got the other group of people who respond with hardship and resistance to what God is doing. And so sometimes people are like, sure, let's leave Egypt. And then sometimes people are like, let's go back to Egypt. And I want you to be the kind of people who are more open, the kind of people who are more like Mary and Joseph and the others around the Christmas story, because the Christmas story comes embedded with a challenge. Everything about the Christmas story to you and me seems old hat. It's all tradition. It's all old stories. We've heard it all the time. But for those people back then, it was tragically new. 
It was a virgin who's now all of a sudden pregnant. It was a man who is engaged to a woman who's now all of a sudden pregnant. It's all of these tragically new experiences. And these people had to be open to the work of God in their lives. And so a phrase that I encouraged you two weeks ago and that I modified last week and gave it to you again that I want you to hold is this one. I will hold on to the promises. I will hold on to the promise of God as I welcome the changes. But it's not just any change, blanket change. It's not just because a thing is changing, it's a good thing. It's when the change comes from God, and Mary and Joseph had an angel come and tell them that this change was from God. You and I don't have an angel coming to talk to us every single day, but we do have the Word of God, which tells us about Jesus, the one who says, you've heard it said, but now I say to you. Jesus, the one who taught us definitively what God is like and what he wants and demonstrated the life of God for us. And so we outline everything with Jesus. If it's outlined by Jesus, then it's a new thing we can embrace. If it's outside of Jesus, then that's a thing that maybe we don't. But if it's outlined by Jesus, if it's something that Jesus himself has taught and encompassed, he filters it, he, he builds the boundaries around it. That's a new thing we can welcome and embrace. I will hold on to the promise as I welcome the changes as outlined by Jesus. That's the key thing we've been kind of talking about over the last couple of weeks. But as I said, frequently when God does that new thing, he requires people to move to a new place. I want to take you back to the book of Numbers An interesting passage in the book of Numbers that highlights this question. Am I going to be the person who's open to the new thing God is doing, or am I going to be the person who's closed off and hardened to it? Okay? Numbers chapter 14, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. It says this. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. And you're like, well, what's the night? What happened during the day that makes them so sad? Well, I'll tell you. What happened during the day? They sent these spies out into the promised land. And the spies came back and they said, the land is more amazing than you could possibly imagine. But it's got giants living in it and they're probably going to kill us. And so the people standing on the verge of the promised land now are weeping because they've come to the edge of the promised land and now they're so sad because there are giants in the land. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt. Man, that's such a weird phrase man, I just wish I had died a long time ago in the land where I was a slave. Weird phrase, weird phrase. If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Let's just think of the logic of this. They believe God is leading them, right? And so they have said, I wish God let me die in Egypt or I wish God had killed me here in this wilderness instead of bringing me all the way to here to let me die in the future. What a weird statement. What a weird statement. The God who brought you out of Egypt without killing you and the God who brought you through the wilderness without killing you is not the God who's taking you into the promised land to kill you. That's not, I mean, God is a much more efficient God than that. If he really wants to get rid of you, he will find a way 
It just so happens that after this whole scenario, God decides he is going to take the lingering long approach, and he says, fine, I will let you die in the wilderness of natural causes after 40 years of crazy wandering. That's what happens after this. But let's keep reading. We're not done with this passage just yet. It says, our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. This is our temptation. Even when we know God is at work, sometimes he will take us to a place that makes us question whether we can trust his direction. We know he's leading, but we doubt his direction. And we think that maybe, just maybe, going back to the old way of doing things is a better way of doing things. This is the challenge that all of us face. And yet God is constantly trying to say, I'm keeping the promise secure, but I'm going to make everything else new, and I want you to come with me. And he did it in the Christmas story with Mary and Joseph. I know you know this part of the story. It's widely, widely known in this uh, entire Christmas world. Anyone who knows the Christmas story knows the story we're about to look at. It's in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Let me ask you to turn there with me if you have a Bible or if you're using our app. It says this, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Side note, archaeologists have discovered the exact time when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And we now know what that, roughly what that year was when this census happened. It's very cool. But anyway, when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, if you think about that for just a moment, it doesn't sound like God's involved. I mean, let's just, let's just do the absolute obvious text analysis. Is God's name mentioned in these first five verses? Here's Joseph. He's pledged to be married to Mary. In fact, by this point in time, he has actually taken her into his house, into his home to be his wife, but he hasn't consummated the marriage yet. And so depending on your perspective, they're either still engaged or they're married, but he has brought her into his home to be his wife for him to take care of her. And then we read this story that there's this census and they need to leave and, and they're, taking, they're going somewhere else. But the question I have for you is, is this God? Is it God who's behind all this? And the answer is, on the surface, no. It's the Roman governor, Caesar Augustus. Caesar, the the emperor of Rome, is the one who makes the decree at the beginning of this chapter. Caesar, this 
pagan ruler, this guy who doesn't care about the Jewish people at all, this guy who his entire aim is just more power for himself. He's in charge of the Roman Empire, which is on an absolute tear of trying to get more and more land. They're growing. They're trying to get bigger and bigger. And he's the emperor of the most powerful superpower in the world, in history, up until that point in time. And Caesar's like, you know what? I want to count these people. I want to count them all. I want to find out how many people I have so I can figure out how much taxes I can gather, so I can figure out how big of an army I can have. Let's count all the people so I can figure out how great I am. This pagan guy. Why? Why would Joseph ever feel motivated to follow the orders of this pagan authority? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't seem like it would be coming from God. Maybe Moses and Mary, uh, jo- Joseph and Mary are just thinking to themselves, this can't be God at work. I mean, just remember, God had sent an angel to talk to each one of them individually. And he said to Mary, you're going to be pregnant and you're going to give birth. And he said to Joseph, Mary's going to give pregnant and she's going to get pregnant and give birth and you should take her into your home. The angel specifically said, hey, this amazing thing is going to happen. And if, and if God is promising to you, the literal Messiah is going to be born from you, then why in the world would you pay attention to an earthly king? The King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Messiah himself, is currently kicking Mary's belly sometimes. Why would they ever feel motivated to follow the rules of the Caesar? Oh, and on top of that, we know from this story that Joseph and Mary are both descendants of David, right? Well, I imagine if they're descendants of David, then maybe Joseph and Mary knew some of the stories about David, right? Maybe they knew the good stories of David and Goliath. Maybe they knew the bad story of David and Bathsheba. But I think they probably also knew the last story about David. If you look in the book of 2 Samuel, the very, very last story in the book about David is a story of a time when he took a census of the people of Israel, and God got so mad that he sent a plague on them. Let me read you the same story, the same account, the introduction of it from First Chronicles. This is a much more contemporary book to the time of Joseph and Mary. Second Samuel was really, really old, and then later on, another guy took the same story and wrote it down in slightly different language, and so they had two versions of the same story, because the original one was really old, and so then this next guy came by, and he kind of updated a little bit a couple hundred years later, and that's what First Chronicles is and Second Chronicles. And so Joseph and Mary might have read that one more frequently. I'm going to read it to you here. First Chronicles 21, the first three verses say this. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan. Then report back to me so that I may know how many there are. Keep going. He says, but Joab replied, may the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. My Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's subjects? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? You see, the people of Israel knew that if you counted the people, you were not trusting God. Because trusting God means I'm going to trust that God will provide whenever there is a thing I come up against. 
If there's an enemy army that comes up against me, I'm going to trust that God will provide all of the soldiers that I need for that battle. If, if I ever need to raise some money, I'm going to trust that God will provide all of the people and all the resources to help me meet this need of raising money. Trusting God is different from counting the people. If you count the people, you now know how big your army can be. You now know how much money you can get from taxes. And so the act of counting was considered not an act of trusting. And so Jewish people thought that taking a census was wrong. So put these pieces together. The pagan leader of this super economic power Roman Empire, the pagan leader has now demanded that you participate in a thing that you believe is wrong. God doesn't want us to take a census. He would be mad at us if, he, if we take a census. And now this pagan ruler is asking you to participate in a thing that you think is wrong. Not only is it that you think it's wrong, it's that if you participate, you might be making things worse because then maybe God will start judging the people and maybe God will bring another plague on the people and it will be your fault for participating in it. This census was from a pagan government. And it's something that you think is wrong. Why would Joseph and Mary ever participate? Don't you think, don't you think they would think, God, there is no way this is from you. Some pagan government asked me to do a thing that I think is wrong because of what you've done in the past. God, this can't be from you. But there are a couple other things on top of it. It, because the census was to count the people, and because counting the people determined how much you could tax, the more people you counted, the more tax you would expect. The more tax you expect is the more tax you extract from the people. And so if this census takes place, and if Joseph participates in it, then Joseph and Mary are one more family that have increased the total tax levy that his brothers and sisters in Israel are going to suffer with. And so if somehow Joseph and Mary could sneak away and get away from it, then guess what happens? The total tax number comes down, and so the amount of taxes levied on the Jewish people would be less. And so in order for Joseph to help his fellow Jews, he should probably skip out of the census because the census is going to take resources away from God's people. Not to mention, God's people can handle the resources better than that pagan government. I mean, think about that pagan government. The pagan government, sure, it might want to help the poor sometimes. Sure, the pagan government might want to do something good with it, but they're also going to waste a lot of it on the high echelon of the people up there, you know, living in luxury. They're also going to use that money on military purposes. They're also going to use that money on other sorts of things that bring them their glory. The pagan government, you can't trust. But if we could keep more of that money in the hands of God's people, then we could do more good with it. And so, so wouldn't it be a good thing to avoid the census, to reduce the taxes so that God's people keep more of their resources? God, wouldn't you want us to keep more of our resources to ourselves? I imagine they could think that. Oh, and then on top of it, it's just an inconvenient time. I mean, Mary is pregnant, traveling to their hometown from Nazareth to Bethlehem. That's 90 miles. 
That's 90 miles if you, if you walk in roughly a straight line. Back in those days, the minimum amount of time 90 miles could be traveled would be four days. But since Mary was pregnant and uh, circumstances might be different, it could possibly take them longer, maybe even up to a whole week to make that trip. I'm not exactly sure. But 90 miles is a long time. It's just an inconvenient time. I imagine Joseph and Mary could have been of the mindset that, God, there is no way this is from you. This is Caesar asking us to do a thing that we think is wrong, something that removes resources from us and makes us doing God's work more difficult. And frankly, it's just not comfortable. It doesn't make sense. It's inconvenient. Maybe I just won't comply. Don't you think Joseph and Mary might have been tempted to just not comply with the government's wishes? It's an interesting thought. It's especially interesting when you think what would have happened if they had decided to defy the government. Because they needed to go to Bethlehem. In Matthew, we read these words. Matthew chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. It says this. When he... King Herod, that's the he in this paragraph. When King Herod had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." That passage, that passage is a prophecy in the Old Testament that says the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. So, hundreds of years before Jesus is born, a prophet says the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. A couple hundred years later, Caesar Augustus issues a decree that a census should be taken in the entire Roman world. And when he issues that decree, Joseph and Mary think to themselves, well, there are all kinds of reasons I don't think God would ever do this. But we're going to comply anyway. And so they make the trek to Bethlehem. And when they get there, the prophecy is fulfilled. This is weird to me. It is God using a secular authority and the submissiveness of his people to accomplish an eternal purpose. You can't see the purpose. I don't think Joseph and Mary understood that the baby had to be born in Bethlehem. You know why? Because the angel didn't tell him. The angel didn't say, hey, you know what? You're going to get pregnant, and then I want you to go to Bethlehem because the baby needs to be born in Bethlehem. The angel didn't go to Joseph and say, by the way, I want you to take Mary home to be your wife and then travel to Bethlehem because the baby needs to be born in Bethlehem. The angels didn't tell him that. The word of God didn't tell either one of them that. They didn't know. In fact, I don't think Joseph and Mary knew the prophets well enough to know that the baby was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And do you know why I know that? Because the only one in the New Testament who quotes that verse from the Old Testament is Matthew, the super nerd of Bible prophecy. He's the only one. 
Luke, the guy who researches everything in detail, is the one who writes the book of Luke, and he writes it from the perspective of Mary. He did eyewitness interviews with Mary. He wrote down her story. Luke is telling the story from Mary's perspective, and he mentions that they traveled to Bethlehem, but he doesn't mention that it was prophesied that they should be there. This is the amazing thing. I don't think Mary knew because if she knew, she would have told Luke. Mary would have been like, you know what? We went to Bethlehem. I mean, the the governor, the the Caesar, he told us we should go, but you know, it was prophesied. So we knew we had to go anyway. She could have done that, but she doesn't. Here is the amazing thing to me. Here are two people who have every sign that they should defy the government. But because they're willing to submit to the secular authority of this government, they end up fulfilling prophecy. They end up exactly where God had wanted them. And you and I need to know that God's plan to get them to Bethlehem required the command of a pagan leader and the submission of the people of God. Man alive, that's a weird thing. That's a weird story. That's not the kind of story we want to have. We want to have the kind of story where God says, listen, you're following me. It doesn't matter what the rest of the world says. You just follow me and me only. And if I don't say anything, you just don't do it. It just so happens that God has given us examples of Joseph and Mary. And then he's given us commands later on through the mouth of the apostle Paul, where he says, the people in authority over you have been placed there because I'm in charge. That's the thing. There's a thing you and I don't believe strongly enough. Simply put, God runs the show. We just don't believe that well enough. Uh, We sometimes think it. We think it this way. You're driving in your car, you get to the parking lot, and you think to yourself, oh man, I'm so late, man. Wouldn't it be great if God just opened up a parking spot right there next to the door for me? And then you see a parking spot opening up, and you pull into that parking spot, and you're like, wow, God, thank you. Thank you. I know that God is in charge of literally everything when he does literally something for me. It makes me feel like God is really in charge. But when it doesn't work out for me, I don't think, oh, God is really in charge. He really wanted me to walk the half a mile from the end of the parking lot all the way to the door. God is in charge. He wanted me to lose that thing. God is in charge. He wanted that person in my life to leave me. God is in charge. He wanted the society to crumble around me. God is in charge. He was okay. He even perhaps wanted to have this global pandemic test us the way it has. God is literally in charge, and we just don't believe it. And Joseph and Mary are like, okay, so God's in charge. I'm supposed to go, so I go. That's it. That's all that matters. Uh, They're just trusting God that he's going to do his thing no matter what path God takes to get to the thing. And Mary and Joseph are like, okay, yeah, we've got the Messiah in, in Mary's womb, so it doesn't matter. Wherever we go, God is with us. Now, that whole story, I think, is just an amazing thing. And so I want to give you a hypothetical situation. Hypothetical situation. Let's just imagine, you know, imagine a world where a government agency begins to make some regulations that seem to make you think they're asking you to do something that's outside of God's plan for your life. 
Maybe they ask you to wear a particular article of clothing. And for you, you're like, it doesn't, I don't see that in the Bible. I don't think God really, you know, cares about that particular article of clothing. But the, the government is asking you to wear a particular article of clothing. And you're like, I don't think I, I need to. I don't think I should. It doesn't really sound to me like a thing that uh, God would want me to do. And then, and then they really start going after churches. And then they're like, you know what? You know what? We think we think that for a period of time, and we're not going to tell you how long, we think for a period of time, no churches should meet together in person. We just think that churches, you can't meet together in person. You need to stay away from each other. We think you should not be inside small gathering kind of spaces. Don't meet. And the government says this overt thing to churches that says you should not meet. And then, just to go on top of that, the government says, and you know what? We think we need to raise some taxes so that we can cover some of the costs of helping other people. In, and that's going to affect uh, church people. It's going to affect other people. And all of these things, all along, I'm thinking to myself, you know what? I, don't, I didn't hear God tell me that. I didn't read in my Bible whenever we should you know, stop meeting in churches. And, and maybe I'd be tempted to just defy the government and say, no, I'm not going to do that thing. No, I'm not going to follow your wishes and your orders. I'm just going to do my own Christian thing. And maybe by doing that, we miss out on our Bethlehem. And maybe by doing that, we miss out on the thing God was trying to lead us to. And maybe by doing that, we, we don't reach the place where he was trying to take us to fulfill some work that he had been planning for a long time because we've short-circuited it with our own hard-heartedness that we think is just following God. Listen, I want you guys to know how incredibly grateful I am for you. You're the kind of people who, when our church wasn't meeting in person, you were still praying your heart was still in this family. You were still trying to connect, whether digitally or in face-to-face small gatherings elsewhere. You're the kind of people who, when the government recommended everybody wearing masks, you were willing to do so, and, and you would come here on a Sunday morning, and we'd all be in the annoying masks. Remember the Sunday that I had the double-layer mask while I was preaching? Man, that was horrible. I hated that. It was painful and annoying, but guess what? We did that stuff, and, and we're still going through some of it even now. But I just, I just need you to know how proud I am of you, how grateful I am for you, because, because we're the kind of people who are trying to walk like Joseph and Mary. The kind of people who are like, God, I don't know what you're up to, but I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to keep walking forward. And I'm, going to, I'm just going to trust that you're in charge. And so there isn't anything in this world that can come against the church. And therefore, this thing isn't destroying the church either. I'm going to trust you. And I'm just going to go ahead and walk along this journey. And I've seen that in you. And I want to thank you. And I want to encourage you. And I want to recommend that you keep it up. Not, not always just doing whatever the government tells you. That's not my point. If they ever ask me to disown Jesus, you better believe that's a, that's a line too far. I'm not ever going there. And that's the time when I lose my life. And that's okay with me. But, but all this other stuff, the stuff that I think doesn't line up with what I think God might want, eh, it just really doesn't matter that much. And I want to be the kind of person who trusts God so much that I'm willing to let him be in charge. And I'm willing to walk on that long path from Nazareth 
to Bethlehem, not even knowing that that's where God wanted me to go, but maybe finding it out later. That's the first thing. I want to encourage you to be the kind of people who hold on to God's promise as we welcome the changes. But there's another thing I wanted to cover today, and it's a parallel issue, a side issue, an issue that some of you have heard me talk about a lot, but an issue that I'm not going to have a chance to talk with you about ever again, and so I have to get it out today, okay? And it is one of my two beefs with the Christmas myth, the Christmas story. Some of you know where I'm going with this because you've been around here long enough to hear me mention it in passing in little snippets, but today I'm going to give you the bigger picture. Now, in order to give you the bigger picture, I decided to start with a picture book. And this picture book is a children's book uh, published by the Golden Book Company that I have at my house that talks through the Christmas story. And I'm not going to read the whole thing for you, but I'm going to show you three pages of it, which I think are important. You all know the Christmas story. The Christmas story goes like this. An angel comes to Mary and speaks to Mary, and I don't have that picture. Well, I'll get to this one soon, but you can leave it up. It's fine. An angel comes to Mary and says that she's going to become pregnant. And then she does become pregnant. And Joseph, her wonderful, loving fiance, decides to take her under his own wing and to bring her in as his wife. And then the government says that a census needs to be taken of the entire Roman world. And Joseph is like, oh no, what am I supposed to do? Mary's now pregnant and we have to go to Bethlehem. I guess we have to go. And they pack up quickly and Mary jumps on a donkey. Well, probably doesn't jump, but they get on a donkey and they go on a ride. And if you know the Christmas story and you can picture it in your mind, you probably have a picture in your mind of Mary and Joseph in a silhouette on a hill with a star behind them. And so it's like midnight and Mary and Joseph are making this long nightly trek from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And when you were a kid, you didn't know it was 90 miles. And when you were a kid, you didn't know it would take a minimum of four days. And when you were a kid, no one ever talked to you about the fact that between Nazareth and Bethlehem, they would need to spend the night multiple places and they would need to have multiple days worth of food. And they would need to have bedding, and they would need to have something that would allow them to have a comfortable place to sleep. Maybe you hadn't thought about that fact that on the way from Nazareth to Bethlehem, unless you were an absolute idiot, you would have all the supplies needed for multiple days of relative comfort, whether that's staying in a town or camping out somewhere. But the story is, I diverge, the story is that Mary and Joseph now are going on this journey to Bethlehem. And it's always described as a long journey. In fact, the bottom here, it was a long, weary journey for her. Okay? fine. And then let's go to the next page. The next page, they've now entered Bethlehem. And you all have this picture in your mind. They enter Bethlehem. And Joseph goes door to door, and he's knocking on all the doors. Can, can you ha- do you have a place for us to stay? He talks to all the different innkeepers. Do you have a place for us to stay? And it's so crowded with all of these white people that Joseph and Mary, I just mentioned that because they're they're obviously not Middle Eastern in this storybook. I just have to say that. But, and so Joseph, the Bethlehem is crowded with all these white 
tourists. And so he and, and Mary, who are also for some reason white, are knocking on every innkeeper's door and they are trying to find a place to stay. Knock, knock, knock. And sorry, there's no room. Sorry, there's no room. Sorry, there's no room. They get rejected and rejected and rejected. And it's like, oh my goodness, what are they going to do? But finally, you know, you know what happens next. Finally, there's one good-natured innkeeper. There's always an innkeeper in the children's stories, you know? There's always a good-natured innkeeper whose heart breaks for Joseph and particularly for Mary. And he says, I don't have any room either, but I do have a stable out back. And the hay will be soft. And you can go out to the stable and you can stay in the stable. And then they go out there to the stable and it's a good thing because as soon as they get back there, Mary is fully dilated and she is ready to go and the baby pops out and oh my goodness, the timing is phenomenal. The baby has just been born and then the rest of the story happens with the shepherds and and all the other stuff. And and we're going to talk about the shepherds on Christmas Day. Today we're not going to talk about the shepherds. We'll get to that on Christmas Day. That's the that's your spoiler for you know what the Christmas Day video is going to be all about. But the, the shepherds happen all after that. So let's see the last one. And there is Joseph, for some odd reason, doing the hand, prayer hands like this, which I don't think was even invented until the Middle Ages. And then, But he's kneeling down in front of the baby, and they have an ox just to remind us it's a stable. And for whatever reason, they don't even put a manger in there. Like what? I don't even get the picture. I don't know why there's no manger, because it says right there, laid him in the manger since there was no room for them in the inn. I don't, I don't get it. Okay, so I just showed you the traditional story. Now, what I want to do is I want to show you the Bible. And I want to give you the exact description of this whole story from the Bible. Okay, you ready? Beginning in verse 4, Luke chapter 2. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, you might have noticed a couple things, but the first thing I want you to notice is just how boring that story was. I mean, let's be honest. If you didn't, if you didn't already have all that drama of a late night, long distance journey, if you didn't already have that drama of walking through a crowded city of Bethlehem, knocking on all the doors, and finally a good-natured innkeeper, and then the stable, if you didn't have that drama... This story is boring. What happened in Christmas? Oh, um, Mary's pregnant. Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem, so they traveled to Bethlehem. While they're in Bethlehem, she has a baby. She put it in a manger. That's the weird part. We'll get to that, why there's a manger. In fact, the manger thing comes on Christmas Day. You have to wait for the shepherds to learn about the manger. But put them in a manger, that's weird, because there's no guest room available to them. Like, The story is boring. It's even more boring when you know some of the reasons why we get it wrong. Okay, so the question is, why did we develop such a mythology around this story? Why did we develop all that stuff? And I think there are three reasons why we developed all that mythology. I put it on the screen here. It's also in your notes. There are no blanks. I'm just going to read this stuff. 
Why do we develop this, met, this mythology? Number one, the King James Version translation has two problems in it. One of them is the King James fault, and the other one is our fault. It has two problems. Secondly, our modern ideas don't represent ancient reality. Because our modern ideas are wrong, we read the King James wrong in one of them, in one of the translation errors, and the other one we just get wrong because we don't understand the ancient world. And then number three, we really want the story to be more heroic. This is the birth of the Messiah, and we need it to be more interesting. We need it to be more heroic, and so we need to embellish it. We need to boost the story a bit, and so we do. After all, I'm going to have the kids up here on Christmas Eve, and they're going to hear a Christmas story, and if their Christmas story lasts three verses long, they're not going to sit there very interestedly, and then it's all going to be over, and, and we need 10 minutes of filler material for our Christmas Eve service. And so as a result, you know, we can't just read the Bible. We have to embellish the story, right? We need something more heroic. Well, let me read to you from a number of different translations some of the things so you can see what I'm talking about. Let's start with this whole idea that Mary was ready to pop, that Mary was just, she was on the verge of giving birth the whole way from Bethlehem, and it was just absolutely, you know, an emergency situation. Let's talk about that first. It comes from the King James Version, because in the King James Version, in the verse, we read this. They went there to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. So the King James Version uses the phrase great with child. And you and me, in our modern way of thinking, we're like, oh my goodness, great with child. She must have been, she must have been like out to, out to here, you know. We're not, talking, we're not talking basketball here. We're talking like, you know, beach ball. And she's ready to go. She is great with child. This is such a difficult thing. That's just kind of a combination of a translation problem and also our own interpretation. Because let me show you all the other English translations. Here it is in uh, uh, the ESV. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Here's the New American Standard. Uh, in order to register along with married, who was engaged to him and was with child. Look at this next one from the NIV. We already read it. And she was expecting a child. And then this one from the New Living Translation says, who was now obviously pregnant. Because see, here's the thing. To be great with child means that you have become bigger. And now people can see it. It doesn't mean you're huge. It just means people can see it. To be great with child means now you are no longer your same size as before. You're now a greater. You're just a little bigger. And so the idea that Mary was like way pregnant and ready to pop, not in the Bible. We don't know how pregnant she was. We know she spent three months with Elizabeth. We don't know when she became pregnant after the angel met with her. Uh, we know she was three months with Elizabeth. We know then that Joseph took her home to be married with him, to be his wife. And we don't know when they traveled to Bethlehem. We just don't know. But there's a good six months there that they could have figured that situation out. And it's highly unlikely that Joseph, if Mary was three or four days away from giving birth, it's highly unlikely that he would have chosen to travel with her then. Like, for crying out loud, the government can wait four days in order for me to make it down to Bethlehem later. Like the government could figure that one out. They can wait. Or even more likely, Joseph would have left earlier. But let's just 
The whole idea that Mary was super pregnant, not in the Bible. But here's the second problem. The second problem is that whole innkeeper situation. And why did we get the mythology about the innkeeper? Well, that comes from this other verse. Let me show it to you in the NIV. It says, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Oh, by the way, while they were there, that is a really generic term. It doesn't mean as soon as they got there. It meant while they were there. There was a period of time they were in Bethlehem, and I imagine they were there for a while because, I mean, come on. We saw the census in the United States go from January all the way to October, and we're like an elevated, advanced country. So how long would a census take back then in those days? I have no idea, but I'm certain it didn't happen like in one day. And so as a result, he's there, they're there while they were there, who knows when, and she gave birth to her firstborn a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And you're like, wait a minute, something's wrong with that. Literally every single time I have ever heard the Christmas story, it has always been no room in the inn, no room in the inn, no room in the inn. Why does the NIV translate this as guest room? Well, some pastors will tell you because the NIV is devil's book. Some pastors will tell you that it's Satan himself who has changed the words in the NIV so that you get all deceived. And I'm not that pastor. I'm going to tell you the two main reasons that I think the NIV is different. Reason number one, we know better. And reason number two, finally, in around 2010, English translators got enough courage to deviate from the mistranslation of the King James Version. It took that long to get enough courage to change. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Here's the King James Version. You know it. Because there was no room for them in the inn. Well, let's go to the English Standard Version. That one came out around the 90s, and that one says there was no place for them in the inn. Let's go to the New American Standard. This was mostly revised in the late 90s. This one says there was no room for them in the inn. Let's look at the NIV again, and it says there was no guest room available for them, and this one was translated around 2010. The thing is, it took that long for for English translators to realize they could have enough courage to make the translation accurate. Because let's be honest, if you hear there is no room in the inn, that feels like Christmas. And if you hear there was no guest room, that doesn't feel like Christmas. And changing Christian mythology is one of the most difficult things that anyone ever does. But let me show you the same word in a different verse. The word is kataluma. And that word is used in Luke chapter 22, same author, Luke. Luke chapter 22, verses 10 through 11, says this. Jesus replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Literally every modern translation, including the King James Version, uses the word guest room there. I don't know what came first, the myth legend or the King James translation of the word in. I don't know. What I know is the word means guest room. It doesn't mean in. And the reason that's important is that there were no inns back then. I mean, literally, there were no inns. There were brothels, 
and there were houses. And so if you entered a city, you had two choices. Choice number one, some nice person would welcome you into their guest room. Or choice number two, you pay money for all of the services provided by the kind of place that would have open beds. Those were your choices. Mary and Joseph weren't knocking on the doors of these places. Furthermore, where was Bethlehem? Bethlehem was like literally their hometown, right? The reason they're going there, Joseph and Mary were literally going to their hometown. There would be relatives there. Most certainly, they'd be living with relatives. And so as a result, what I want to do is I want to give you sort of the ancient story context, just a few things to know about this situation. First of all, uh, Roman censuses happened literally every five years. They were normal. They happened every five years. It just so happened that the Roman Caesar had to officially declare the start of the census. And so he did every five years, just like here in our country, we do it every 10 years. Back in the days of the Roman Empire, they did it every five years. Everyone knew the census was coming. Everyone knew it was going to happen. There was plenty of time to plan. It was not a surprise. Furthermore, all Jews in Nazareth would have had their hometown south in Judea. No Jew in Nazareth was from Nazareth. Nazareth was not a Jewish town. Zero Jews living in Nazareth were from Nazareth. Every Jew in Nazareth would have to travel south to get to Judea, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, one of the other cities. Every one of them would have to travel south. Do you think Mary and Joseph would be the only ones going to Bethlehem? No, many would be going to Bethlehem. Do you think Joseph and Mary would wait until all the rest of them had left and then travel alone on this four-day journey? Of course not. What Mary and Joseph would have done is travel with the caravan of people that were going. It would have been normal to travel with a group of people, not on your own. Then number three, both Mary and Joseph would have had relatives in Bethlehem. I mentioned that. And then finally, this is the most interesting. Ancient peasant houses had animals inside. The way an ancient peasant house was built was as a square because no one except for shepherds lived in fields and no one owned a field except for rich people. And a backyard is just a small field. And so what they had was a house that was a square with a courtyard in the middle and you bring the animals inside. And the animals are there in the middle because, after all, they provide warmth for the rest of the house. And so the animals were in the courtyard, and the house was on a second level. All the rooms were on a second level. And the best place for a person who can't get one of these private rooms because she doesn't have enough seniority in the family or for any other number of reasons, because she can't get seniority priority for one of these guest rooms, the best place to deliver a baby is in the big open space down below. And so that's where the baby would be delivered. That's where Jesus was born. And by the way, since all the animals were there, that's where the manger would be. And mangers make perfect cribs. 
So you just bundle up your little baby so the hay doesn't poke them, and you put them in this nice little soft bed of hay, and brilliant. It is a wonderful situation, not some weird, janky backyard stable situation. After all, stables didn't exist until the Middle Ages. And so, or for kings, rich people. And so you've got this kind of situation where they were just literally in a house. Not to mention, in Matthew, when we hear the story of the Magi, the wise men who come from the east, we are literally told that the Magi find them in a house. And so, there you go. But I want to give you the reason this matters to me. So here's my concluding point. What's the point of all this? I am desperate to communicate that I want you to be a Bible person not a Bible story person. You have heard many stories. Many people have told you things about the Bible. They've told you things about God. They've told you things about the way God works. And I want you to be a Bible person, not a Bible story person. Bible stories can be embellished. The Bible gives you the actual truth. And if it ruins a little bit of the Christmas mythos for you, at least it's true. Number two, I want you to be open to new ideas. I want you to be open to new ideas and willing to change your mind. I want you to be the kind of Christian who realizes God knows more than you. The kind of Christian who realizes God is up to more than you know. The kind of Christian who realizes the text of Scripture is more complicated and nuanced than I have yet fully understood. The kind of Christian who understands that my own response and my own behavior in this world is more nuanced than what I would want it to be. It needs to be more nuanced than all of that. I want you to be the kind of person who is open to learning new ideas and willing to change your mind. We're not going to be the sorts of Christians who are just hard-hearted all the time. And we're like, no, Egypt, let's go back there. We're going to be the kind of Christians who are like, okay, I'm going to Bethlehem, but I don't know why until after I show up and then the miracles start happening. And finally, I want you to be the kind of person who's willing to speak truth without being obnoxious. If you notice, the translators of the NIV do an incredible, incredibly interesting thing. They change the word in to guest room, but don't make a big deal about it. They just make it the right word, but don't make a fuss about it. The, the other part about Mary being great with child, they just, they just say she's pregnant. She's expecting a child. And don't make a fuss about it. If you know the truth and someone else doesn't, you don't have to be one of those people. You know the people I'm talking about? The people who are always trying to prove that they know more than the other person, act all special and important and knowledgeable. We don't have to be those kinds of people. We can be the kind of people who just simply know the truth. And we can say things like guest room and not make a big deal about it. And someone is like, well, I thought it was an inn. And then you're like, yeah, the King James Version says inn. And then if they ask you a question, maybe you could talk about it if it feels important to you. The only reason I bring it up is because I think this story illustrates for you and for me the kind of people that we should be. Joseph and Mary people. The kind of people who are willing to be flexible on a lot because God's in charge. 
The kind of people who are willing to be open to something new because God's in charge. The kind of people who are willing to change our minds because God is in charge. And the kind of people who trust God's own words more than anyone else's words because God's in charge. Hopefully we can be that kind of people this Christmas season and on into the future. But I want to ask you to just take a moment now and spend some time in prayer. And as you pray, I want you to begin to ask God, God, are there things that I have become attached to in the Christian myth of things that I need to let go? Are there feelings of animosity I have towards the government, towards secular people, towards other Christians? Are there feelings of animosity that I need to let go? Are there stories from the Bible that I don't actually know if they're true or not? I haven't actually read them for myself. Let me invite you to ask God to help you evaluate these things in your life because he is in charge and he's making things new. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you, and his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.